Ready to wade deeper into Europe, I catch the train from Amsterdam to Germany. Joy riding by train through Europe is hardly slowing down to smell the roses, but a few petals do hit the windshield. It's a kind of sightseeing, almost being there. Gazing out the window, I catch whiffs of near misses. We pass the town of Alsmere, and I see what it calls the world's biggest building, filled with trainloads of fresh-cut flowers and home to giant auction halls of international flower merchants. An hour east of Amsterdam, we approach the town of Ada. Although I pass it nearly every year, I haven't stopped here since my first trip to Europe in 1969. I was with my parents on a visit to Ada's Ripon Piano Factory. My dad ran a piano store in Seattle, selling the finest European pianos. I was a 14-year-old kid with greasy, combed-down hair and a turtleneck perpetually stretched out by the school bully. I earned my souvenir money not by delivering newspapers, but by dusting pianos at Steve's Sound of Music. When I was a kid, travel was a local affair. We chose from 33 flavors at the ice cream shop on the way to Anacortes, where we cranked our boat off its trailer and cruised the San Juan Islands. The closest I ever thought I'd get to Europe was Victoria, British Columbia, where they had double-decker English buses and served fancy cream teas. One day, my parents excitedly announced, we're going to Europe. My first thought was, why? They don't even speak our language. I haven't seen my own country yet. But my parents were not pro-choice when it came to family vacation plans. Those were the days when you dressed up to fly. Whether I liked it or not, I was collared in a necktie and we were Europe-bound. As I settled into Ada, my distaste for foreign travel faded along with my first bout of jet lag. Dodging bulky one-speed bikes as they rattled over medieval cobbles, I wandered through a new world of entirely untested candies and soft drinks to the market square. Starstruck, then bewildered by lanky Dutch women who revealed hairy armpits as they swallowed their pickled herring Rotterdam-style, I decided travel might be more interesting than another day at home. Visiting untouristy little Ada on this first trip whetted my appetite for offbeat Europe. It peeled history out of my school books and pasted it onto real faces. Our Ada host, piano salesman John Koenig, was a walking, talking scrapbook of World War II memories. As a Dutch resistance fighter, he was caught spying with a tiny camera in his shirt, then tortured by the Nazis and tossed into a concentration camp. Today, although balding and wearing glasses too thick for their delicate wire frames, he was thin, fit, and stood as straight as the stick he used as a kid to vault the polder canals. I stared at Koenig's mouth as he told his vivid stories. It looked much like it did the day he spit broken teeth at his interrogators. When he sunk his fingers deep into the keyboard to show off the latest Ripon piano, I couldn't take my eyes off the prisoner number still tattooed on his wrist. Faded, it slid in and out from under his jacket cuff as he played. It was his prized souvenir, a high-profile reminder he wore where the rest of us strap our watches. Koenig finally did get his revenge. In an industry long dominated by the many great German piano factories, his Dutch company had become Europe's biggest piano factory. He attributed the rise of Ripon to Dutch hustle, aided by the strange destruction of most of their German competition. Back in the 1940s, the Steinway family ran piano factories in New York and in Germany. During World War II, all the great German piano factories were bombed. All, that is, except the Steinway Company in Hamburg. Koenig pointed out that a member of the Steinway family was in the American Bomber Command. Very interesting, he noted in his best Nazi accent. Koenig related to Americans as he thought he should, in superlatives. 
as he guided us through Holland, wandering through toy villages and climbing dikes with the pride of a mountain climber. He kept nudging me and saying, Fantastic, Reek! From the summit of the dike, he surveyed the countryside with me. Koenig, as if he had personally done some of the digging, proclaimed, God made the world, but the Dutch, we made Holland. To drive home that point, he showed off Flevoland, a region entirely reclaimed from the Zyder Sea. This new Dutch state, defined by a 60-mile-long rectangular dike and pumped dry, looked like a lawn that had just been rolled out in preparation for our visit. Today, the oldest things in Flevoland are some of its people. Trees and land date back only to the mid-1960s. From Koenig's car, we surveyed the tranquil countryside in this most densely populated chunk of Europe. I remember rows of transparent houses, huge windows front and back, lace curtains to provide privacy but let in the sun. Holland is a compact and tidy package. It comes in a miniature scale. Koenig explained that Dutch houses, too narrow to fit furniture up their steep stairs, lean out. This is on purpose, he said, pointing to a hoisting beam that extended out from the gable. You can haul your piano up, then you take it in at the top through those big double windows. And Dutch pianos, he continued, the salesman taking over for the tour guide, are the world's smallest, with a full keyboard and a sound so rich, yet they take only 11 inches of your floor. Koenig was old 30 years ago. He's probably dead now. But those early memories of Europe are pressed into my brain like shiny good luck coins stuck on the mossy ceiling of a wine cellar. I remember the things Koenig taught me about Holland. But most of all, I remember his pride in Dutch ways and the way he wore his tattoo. Travel is a crowbar, and already it was clear this kid's hometown perspective was its target. About a year after I wrote this book, by the way, I got a letter from John Koenig. He's in Holland now, alive and well, and he said, Rick, I'm not dead yet. My train seems to speed up, whisking past tiny Ada, as if trains never stop there anymore, hurtling east. On that 1969 trip, my parents and I rode this same train line to Vienna, where we visited the Bersendorfer piano factory. After dusting miles of Bersendorfers, the world's longest and most expensive pianos, I would now see them built. We were in the care of flamboyant Dr. Radler, one of Vienna's piano aristocracy. He was the kind of guy you'd expect to wear an ascot and a monocle. Unlike Koenig, Radler preferred his history pre-Hitler. With his leather gloves gripping the wheel of his luxury car, he bragged that he could zip through tiny farm towns with his eyes closed. We learned later that he was terminally ill, bravado with little to lose. Radler warmed us up with a tour of eastern Austria. We enjoyed Hungarian gypsy musicians performing just this side of Iron Curtain barbed wire, fine views from high atop the Vienna woods, and a visit to the house of Papa Haydn. Then Radler took us to the monastery where Bersendorfers were built. This was the last piano factory in Vienna, a town once home to dozens of piano builders. At Bersendorfer, rather than assembly lines, they had the industrial equivalent of maternity suites. Craftspeople lovingly birthed 200 pianos a year. Radler was fond of reminding us that in a factory of 200 workers, that's one piano per man per year. Cranking up the harsh on his German accent, he compared his factory to the mega factories of Japan, saying, Yamaha produces more pianos in this month than we make since World War II. If Steinway is a trumpet, Bersendorfer is a coronet, the mellowest of pianos. In an ideal world, I'd play Bach on a Steinway and Debussy on a Bersendorfer. Each Bersendorfer had its own personality. My dad was on a mission in Vienna to find the right piano for a particular customer. 
Dr. Radler had lined up five grand pianos. With my parents reflecting in the highly polished mirror-like finish of the music racks, I jumped from bench to bench, giving each piano a melodic test drive. We debated each instrument's personality, made the deal, and triumphantly jotted down the serial number of our musical catch. Before leaving, Dr. Radler granted me the finest piano experience in Europe. Ten minutes on the Imperial Grand, Bersendorfer's nine-foot, six-inch masterpiece. The next longest piano was five inches shorter. The Imperial came with an extra octave in the bass. These eight notes, though not normally played, vibrated powerfully, providing the piano equivalent of a surround sound woofer. I sunk my fingers into those ivories and pulled out mighty chords, those fat, extra-long bass strings rumbling sympathetically. European life and culture had a certain richness and quality that, even as a gum-chewing schoolboy in a stretched-out turtleneck, I was growing to appreciate. Our piano business finished. Dr. Radler piled us into his Mercedes for a Sunday morning victory spin. In the back seat, my mom and I hung from the leather grips to keep from slamming back and forth. We sped to a Danube village in time to see the entire population, kids in lederhosen, sturdy moms and dads, respected grandparents, tumbling out of the Onion Dome Church, across the square, and into the wine garden. Many Americans snicker at the European habit of following a sip of wine at mass with a glass of wine in a bar. Since that experience, I see no contradiction. Three generations enjoying a Sunday afternoon together with the fruits of their grape-picking labor is family values, European style. Dr. Radler, with his gawky American family in tow, sat down at the table marked Stamtisch. That's the table reserved for the most respected regular customers. Everyone in the village seemed to know him. Spreading gooey hunks of lard on coarse village bread, Radler was showing us a gritty slice of his culture. When I ordered two sausages and got four, he laughed at my surprise and explained, here in Austria, sausages come in pairs, like the lederhosen. Under its exotic steeple and fortified towers, the town seemed marinated in history. To bring that history to life, Radler pulled up an extra chair, poured a glass of wine, and invited the oldest man in the village to sit next to me. Radler announced, This man has seen with his own eyes the start of the Great War, the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand in 1914. I thought Radler was being theatrical until the old man spoke. With two gray horsetails for a mustache and a droopy ivory pipe carved fine enough for a Habsburg, he spoke in streaks, allowing Radler to translate. I saw the assassin, Princep the Serb, step out of a bar. Stopped at the corner was the Archduke Ferdinand in the back of his open car. Princep pulled out his gun, took two steps forward, and shot him in the head. Dead. Radler, delighted by my fascination with this eyewitness account of one of the defining moments of the 20th century, asked the old man to back up a bit. The man explained that Princep and his Serbian nationalist partners, upset with Habsburg control, went to Sarajevo to kill Ferdinand, heir to the Habsburg throne. They dropped a bomb on his parade from a bridge, but they miscalculated the speed of the entourage, and the bomb landed on the car behind Ferdinand. The assassins scattered. Pausing as if to rewind the videotape of his life, the old man stared at his lard-covered bread. After twisting a pinch of salt on it with nicotine-stained fingers, he continued. Princep went into a bar to hide and have a schnapps. Later, as he left the bar, he stood before his target. Incredibly, the Archduke, returning from the hospital where he visited the man wounded by the earlier bombing, had stopped on the street in front of the demoralized assassin. Leaning forward as if we were the first to hear this part, the old man said, Princep rubbed his eyes. How could this be true? 
my mom and dad and I leaned forward as well. Even Raedler was on the edge of his chair. As we huddled together over our table, the translating continued. The assassin pulled out his pistol. He shot both the archduke and his wife. And soon after this, he paused, and I said, World War I. As Raedler translated, the old man's eyes twinkled as if he understood that a seed was being planted in this wide-eyed American kid. That seed would grow to be a lifelong love of European history. It was people like Koenig and Dr. Raedler who first took me through Europe's back door and showed me the best of travel. Baby in the Fountain Babies, ancient astronomers, and Americans think the universe revolves around them. After two weeks in Europe, my 14-year-old pre-Copernican world was a shambles. After the piano factories, we rode the train to Norway to visit relatives. In an Oslo park, I watched families at play. These Norwegians, tall, blonde, and rich, seemed to have the world by the tail. As they doted over toddlers who frolicked naked under a fountain, I realized something powerful. Each of these parents loved their kids as much as my parents loved me. Thomas Jefferson wrote, Travel makes one wiser but less happy. Less happy because it can be sobering to discover that the world is more than a high school pep rally. Since that 1969 trip, patriotism has troubled me. It's a cheering squad that can buoy up one nation while submerging the people of another. When the astronauts took that famous one small step for man on the moon, I was sitting on a living room floor in Norway. From their Apollo window, the crew saw an Earth with no borders. They saw, with unprecedented clarity, that we're all on this planet together. And even from my humbler vantage point, a teenager on a Norwegian carpet, having an litteskret for an mansketta, you know, one small step for mankind and one giant leap, and stortskete for mansketren, translated for me by newfound relatives, I was warming to the notion that the best flag to wave is a global one. When you come from a large and powerful country, it's easy to think your way is the norm. But with each visit, my Scandinavian relatives and their small country perspectives challenge my persistent ethnocentrism. Recently, after I gloated over the performance of American athletes at the Olympics, my uncle Tor pointed out, yes, America won the most medals, but Denmark, with six, earned far more per person. I do what I can to bring this wider perspective home. To bruise my dad's ethnocentrism, I taught our three-year-old boy, Andy, to finish dinner prayers by waving his arms and saying, Allah, Allah, Allah. The intensity of Grandpa's reaction was thought-provoking. My passport, my key to the world, is nearly at the end of its ten-year lifespan. Having spent a quarter of that time strapped to my body, it's shaped like me. But as a school kid in Europe, it was zipped safely in my mom's purse and felt more like a leash. In 1971, I was in the Copenhagen train station with my parents, 16 years old and on my second trip to Europe. All around me, people, students, workers, soldiers, vagabonds, rattled in and out. The teasing, clicking, and flipping of the schedule board announced trains departing for Berlin, Frankfurt, Oslo, Amsterdam. I saw that kids just three or four years older than I were bounding off into Europe. The continent was theirs to explore. Then it hit me. I don't need my parents. I could come back with a rucksack and a rail pass. I declared my freedom, vowing then and there that I would return to Europe every year for the rest of my life. And I have. I'd kill for your job. As the train pulls out of Zevenaar, the last stop in the Netherlands, a spunky young American tourist with a two-big bag shops her way down the aisle of the train car. She pokes her head into my compartment. 
Rick Steves, she says. The Rick Steves. I detect a touch of mockery in her delight. My bag reserves the window seat opposite mine for my feet. Saying, may I, without a hint of a question, she hefts my bag to the luggage rack above my head. The woman sits down across from me and pulls a copy of my guidebook from her daybag. As she matches the back cover mugshot to my real-life face, the train reaches its cruising speed. Without a sentence of small talk, she gets right to the point. My name's Margot. I'm from Boston. I'd kill for your job. How did you get started, anyway? Without waiting for me to answer, she continues, You wrote the book I should have written long ago. Intrigued by her energy and realizing we're stuck together on the train, I give her a more complete than normal answer to this frequently asked question. You can't just want to be a travel writer, I say. You have to be a traveler first. I traveled for six summers purely for kicks. From the start, I had a passion for journal writing. I followed one strict rule, never finish a day without writing it up. I tell her that even as a kid, my prize souvenir was a box of postcards arranged chronologically, each carefully numbered and filled in with the day's weather and a money-spent-money-left chart. On later trips, I'd fill up 200-page empty books with fine print accounts of my adventures. In Bulgaria during the Cold War, I'd protect my friends by writing my journal in cryptic notes to be deciphered and transcribed only after crossing the border. But when did you actually become a travel writer, a professional travel writer, Margot prompts. I was a teacher first, I say. Even today, when I cross a border and the customs official asks my occupation, I say, teacher. I started teaching travel after I took a bad travel class at the university. She crinkles her nose and looks up at me through a blonde tangle of two-moosed hair. Explain, she demands. I tell her that 20 years ago, in preparation for an overland trip from Europe to India, I took a class called Istanbul to Kathmandu, an independent traveler's guide. It was part of the University of Washington's experimental college. When I signed up, I considered the class a godsend. But the teacher was unprepared, lazy, and disorganized. The room was filled with vagabonds about to embark on the trip of their lives, and the teacher didn't care. While he had the information we needed, he insulted us with pointless chatter. I learned nothing about travel to Kathmandu, but the class taught me something far more important. I learned the value of well-presented travel information, and I realized that I could teach European travel. As the train clangs and clatters on, we cross the border. The last Dutch windmill and the first German castle, standing like border guards, dutifully salute tourists leaving one country and entering another. We hear a train door slam and the distant voice of a tired conductor chanting, Fahrkarten bitte, billet, s'il vous plaît, tickets please. Pulling the same type of money belt from her pants as I pull from mine, she says, See, I bought your money belt. When the weary conductor reaches us, he stamps the date on our train passes. As we tuck them away again, he says, Gute Fahrt, and slides the door shut. I just love the way they always say fart, says Margot. I explain, that means journey. He wished us a good journey. Many first-time visitors to Germany have a similar fascination with the farts of Deutschland. I don't tell Margot that between piano factory visits, my dad and I collected farts. Driving down the Autobahn, counting fart signs was definitely more interesting than counting Volkswagen Beetles. Autobahn exits are marked Ausfahrt. Some tourists actually wonder why so many towns in Germany are named Ausfahrt. Beyond Ausfahrt, our collection included Grossfahrt, big trip, Schnellfahrt, fast trip, Zufahrt, this way to the zoo, mess around fart, round trip to the convention center, and our favorite, panorama fart. That's a scenic journey. This sport worked north of Germany, too. In Denmark, journey is also pronounced fart. As we connected islands, we read ferry schedules labeled 
heart planner. And to hail elevators, I ran ahead of my parents to push the button that read, I fart. To this day, my dad and I bid each other farewell, as our German friends did, with a cheery, have a good fart. Within minutes, we were in the Ruhr Valley. Through the window, with a Teutonic lack of fanfare, stout and Spartan cooling towers mark the eye of Germany's industrial storm. Those are nuclear? Margot asks. Yeah, Germany's intense, I answer. Imagine one-third the population and industrial capacity of the entire United States packed into a place the size of Montana. Unimpressed, Margot steers the conversation back to my background. So, after that lousy Kathmandu class, you started teaching travel? I signed up to teach my own experimental college travel class, I tell her. I called it European Travel Cheap. I thought maybe 20 or 30 college kids would sign up. But that first class was filled with a 100 adults, people my parents' age. The class cost $8. I'd bring a bundle of $2 bills and take home a bundle of 10s. Walking quickly across a dark campus after those first classes with a book bag full of money, I realized there was a business here. At first, I was happy to earn enough to pay for my annual plane ticket. But as enrollment grew, I began making more teaching travel than I did teaching piano. As my class evolved, so did my delivery. By responding to my audience and constantly experimenting, I learned what worked and what didn't. To a group of decent people, the word horny was fun, but pissed off, that's offensive. Over several years of lecturing, I developed a sixth sense of what people needed to know and what they didn't need to know. By fielding thousands of questions, I learned which fears and apprehensions were most troubling as departure day neared. But when my aunt suggested I write a book about Europe, I thought she was crazy. I was a traveler with a bunch of slides, not a writer. Besides, I thought, why turn my play into work? Outside our train window, the burnt marshmallow-colored twin spires of Cologne's cathedral salute a skyscraping V for victory. They seem to celebrate that fact that while Germany made the colossal mistake of following Hitler into an all-out war and paid a colossal price, the cathedral survived. Margot doesn't notice. Looking at me as if I have a rucksack packed with extra credits, she says, I'm taking a travel writing class. I told her, I never took a writing class. I learned to write by giving talks. Then I talked the same way to the page. I read one book about writing. It's called On Writing Well by William Zinzer. When I feel that I should read another book to fine-tune my writing, I read Zinzer again. And I travel. Travel writing means going to great places and taking your reader with you. You need to really be there. Sense of place, Margot says, as if on jeopardy. Right. Pulling out one of my newsletters, I flip through the pages and say, read this paragraph out loud. Read it like you're a tour guide in Wonderland. With mock-wide eyes, Margot whispers, you're walking along a ridge, high in the Alps. On one side of you spreads the greatest alpine panorama, the Eiger Jungfrau. On the other side, lakes stretch all the way to Germany. And ahead of you, the long legato tones of an Alphorn announce that there's a helicopter-stocked mountain hut just around the corner, and the coffee schnapps is on. I like it, she says, slipping a bottle of wine and plastic glasses out of her day bag. But, she persists, pouring me a glass, how do you make money at travel? I haven't really considered my formula before. The wine is good, she's bubbly, and I feel a little flattered by her interest. So I take a long sip, and sounding both professorial and fatherly, trace the evolution of my writing career. I wrote my first book like I was giving my talk to the paper. I self-published it. Anyone with time and money can do that. I rented an IBM Selectric and got my girlfriend to help type my manuscript. My maps were ballpoint pen crude. I pasted on sketches my college roommate drew out of my favorite slides. 
Coming up with a title was hard. Brainstorming, I collected a list. Europe yourself, Europe on your own, go local and European, Europhiles. One day as I reviewed the list and still found no winner, my dad asked, what's the purpose of the book? I told him, to give people the key to finding an informal and real Europe so they can be friends with Europe. He sipped his coffee, thought a moment, and said, Europe through the back door. I finished the book in 1980 and with a check for $3,000 delivered 256 carefully assembled pages to the printer. Two weeks later, I filled my station wagon with 2,500 copies of Europe Through the Back Door. That first edition was a humble one. As if to sabotage my own work, I forgot to put on an ISBN number, which made it difficult for retailers to order the book. The first cover of the book was so basic that people in the media mistook it for a pre-publication edition. Holding my finished product, they'd ask, and when will this be out? My first big break came when the travel editor of the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, Bob Davis, serialized my book. Given its focus on independent travel, this was a courageous move back then, one that offended advertisers and ultimately cost Davis his job. I was honored and nervous when Mr. Davis took me out to a fancy French restaurant for lunch. I remember browsing through the menu and not recognizing the word quiche. I asked, Mr. Davis, what is quiche? My book sold only locally and in my classes but after it came out, people saw me as an expert, even though I wasn't. Taking advantage of this momentum, I polished my teaching, learned how to pronounce quiche, and built my business. The train pulls into Bonn. Trying to redirect just a little of her attention away from my job to Europe, I tell Margot how sleepy Bonn was a good choice for Germany's post-Hitler capital. This was the home of Beethoven, I tell her. It symbolized a peaceful and highly cultured Germany, a Germany without the goose-stepping. Oblivious, Margot asks, how can I make money traveling, like you? I launch into a pep talk. There's a huge demand for practical, entertaining travel talks. Libraries, schools, businesses, clubs, and universities. Be generous with your information. Give free talks. Get your teaching out there any way you can. Let newspapers use your writing for free. Teach first, sell second. But don't quit your day job. As Margot considers allying herself with the travel agency, I interrupt. Don't become a travel agent and don't expect help from the travel industry. You'll be considered dangerous competition. You are a teacher of travel, not a travel agent. Be passionate about the beauty of travel, a Johnny Appleseed of travel dreams. Cause people to marvel and ask, how do you make any money? If you keep on teaching with a contagious enthusiasm for Europe, eventually you might make some money. By now, my enthusiasm is raging but her once-eager eyes look weary as she slowly deflates. Squeezing the last of her wine into her glass, she says, I could just come and work for you. From the train window, we see the statue of Kaiser Wilhelm on a prancing horse that graces that piece of Koblenz real estate where the Rhine and the Mosul rivers come together. Koblenz is Latin for confluence, but for Margot and me, it means exactly the opposite. I thank her for the wine and wish her well, then hop off the train. The trackside schedule lists a train to my Rhine target departing in two minutes, not another for two hours. A fine travel moment. I'm alone again, looking up at the schedule as the train pulls in. I put my hand on the door of the train, frozen in thought. I was planning to catch the boat down the Rhine from here, but I don't know if or when the boat leaves. The conductor looks at me as if to ask, Well, are you with us or not? The whistle blows. Quickly reviewing my options, I follow that marvelous old traveler's axiom, a train at hand is worth jumping on. Moments later, I'm rolling along the riverside track, alone with Europe, wind in my face, and Ryan in my viewfinder.
Lady Lorelei on the Rhine. This train's a milch run, stopping at each village along the Rhine. But the villages turn their backs on the tracks and smile at the river. We pass a steamer, so I jump out in the town of Buppard. I've just enough time to hike from the train station to the boat dock and catch it. As the sturdy white boat sidles up to the dock, dock hands lasso a large cleat and lower the gangplank. Dozens of tour boats like this one cruise the Rhine River, stopping at all the villages and offering grand views of medieval castles. This is the Romantic Rhine, a powerful stretch of the river slashing a deep and scenic gorge through western Germany from Koblenz to Mainz. When Hitler's inability to get along with his neighbors limited his people's vacation options, the Rhine was a leading German holiday destination. Even today, Germans feel drawn to their Grand Canyon. The sheer bulk of history that has poured through this craggy gorge rouses any romantic soul. Jostling through crowds of Germans and tourists, I climb to the sun deck and grab a chair. With the last new passenger barely aboard, the gangplank is dragged in and the river pulls us away. My destination? the medieval village of Bacharach. Parkas flap in the cool wind as the rugged hills gradually reveal castles both ruined and restored. The ridges of the gorge rise above us, unblemished by any modern building thanks to a strict code that holds the tide of contemporary Germany back, out of sight from this romantic river escape. Tortured green vineyards climb steep hillsides and turreted towns grab friendly bits of shoreline. Trains streak like arrows along both shores. Bright green and red buoys battle the current, keeping the cautious parade of barges and sightseeing boats off the many reefs. The Rhine starts from Swiss snowmelt and flows 800 miles to join the Atlantic at Rotterdam. Culturally, it's Europe's continental divide. Once it divided ancient Rome from the barbarians. In later times, it divided the Roman Catholic world, Bavaria, Belgium, and the south, from Protestant Europe, northern Germany, the Netherlands, and north. We pass ghostly Roman towers, Standing tall in spite of the ivy fingers trying to pull them to the ground, they mark the northern edge of what was once the Roman Empire. To the north was the Barbar Barbarian world, named for its crude-sounding, non-Latin way of talking. Anyone who didn't speak Latin or Greek back then was considered uncivilized. Barely human creatures who did more grunting than speaking, barbarians fell somewhere between animals and Romans. Roman-style order, whether ancient or papal, came from the top and required conformity. Beyond Rome's reach, a kind of grassroots but chaotic freedom reigned. As I compare the go-by-the-book Catholic world with my free-as-the-wind Viking Protestant heritage, it's hard to ignore contradictory images in Europe today. How can the jukebox orderliness of a planned Swedish suburb come out of barbarian chaos? And if the South is so inclined to embrace top-down orderliness, why is there not a hint of the Pope in Rome's chaotic traffic? With a loud blast of its horn, our boat chugs to one of its many stops, dumping passengers as newcomers muscle for position. The configuration of tourists and deck chairs changes at every stop. An American family gets on and settles in front of me. Mom flips open my German guidebook and plays tour guide with her family. She points as she reads from my self-guided tour of the Rhine, and her children squint at the castle crowning a hill directly above the boat. So it would be easier to follow, I keyed my Rhine tour to the black-and-white kilometer signs along the shoreline. These bold, eight-foot square billboards indicate the distance upstream to the Rhine Falls, where the river becomes navigable. While they were designed as ships' navigational aids, I joke in my book that I put them there myself as tourist aids, because I care so much. The woman wonders out loud with her children. I wonder how Rick managed to get all those signs up. 
People are inclined to like and believe their guidebook writer. I get several letters each year thanking me for these signs. The Rhine River's historic strategic importance may be a subconscious attraction for the thousands who visit the region, but all along the Rhine, romantic fairy tales fly like kites that got away in the breeze. Each castle and every rock comes with a story. As the cliffs get steeper, the rocks darker, and the river faster, the scenery becomes more dramatic. With the boat sun deck filled mostly with beer-sipping, ice-cream-licking Germans, the general pulse quickens as we approach the mythological climax of this cruise. Over the ship's blowhorns, in three languages, comes the story of the Lorelei, the maiden who seduced sailors into shipwrecks. The Germans know the story by heart, but the story is repeated as a sort of national anthem. The Lorelei, a 400-foot-high black rock, shoves a zigzag into the river. Like a slate lump in the throat of Germany, it stirs the national soul. While the modern German state dates only from 1870, German culture is as old as Europe. It's as if the rich legends and traditions of this gorge add to the legitimacy of the Johnny-come-lately of European superpowers. Germany's flag waves with pre-World War II pride from Lorelei's summit and castles lurk as shadowy bodyguards checking the traffic on either side. Our ship, slung low with tourists, plays a lusty rendition of the Lorelei song, and parents point to the rocky bluff featured in the fairy tale memory of every German school kid. According to legend, a thousand years of skippers have dreaded the Lorelei. This is the bad news corner in what has always been Germany's major shipping river. The current speeds up here as the gorge reaches its narrowest point, barely 150 feet across. To make matters worse, a reef of seven rocks, named the Seven Maidens by some medieval German misogynist, lies in ambush just around the corner. But it was the legendary Wunderbar Fraulein Lorelei, her long blonde hair almost covering her body, who lured boatloads of drooling sailors to her riverbed. Like a deadly wet dream, she held the sailors' attention captive, letting go only after their ships were dashed under the rocks. The legend recalls a count who sent his men to capture or kill Lorelei after his son followed her to his death. When the soldiers cornered the nymph in her cave, she called her dad, Father Rhine, for help. Huge waves, the likes of which you'll never see today, rose from the river and carried her to safety, and she has never been seen since. But alas, when the moon shines brightly and the wind is just right, a soft, playful Rhine wine can still be heard from the Lorelei. As you pass, listen carefully. Sailors! Sailors! As late as the early 1900s, bells rang on ships reminding sailors that the Lorelei was approaching and it was time to pray. Today, from a parking spot opposite the rock, tour guides shout across the river and the rock shouts back. Any medieval scholar will tell you these echoes are the ghostly voices of drowned sailors consumed by the lovely, lonely maiden who combed her hair and sang so seductively. Battleground Bacharach As the song of the Lorelei fades, our boat docks at the half-timbered town of Bacharach, and I jump out. Bacharach, wearing a castle hat and a vineyard cape, is a typical Rhine village. It lines the river and fills its tiny tributary valley with a history you can hook arms with in a noisy wine stoop. Bacharach means altar to Bacchus. The town and its wine date from Celtic and Roman times. Local vintners brag that the medieval Pope Pius II preferred Bacharach wine and had it shipped to Rome by the cartload. Today, tourists drink it on the spot. 
Bacharach's honorary mayor is given the title of Bacchus. The last Bacchus, one of the best wine gods in memory, died a year ago. Posters, left up as a memorial, it seems, show his pudgy highness riding a keg of Riesling, wearing a tunic, and crowned by grapes as the adoring villagers carry him on happy shoulders. Bacharach's annual wine fest is the first weekend of each October, just before the harvest. This is a wine fest with a reason, to empty the barrels and make room for the new wine, a chore locals take seriously. The festival is months away, but the dank back alleys of Bacharach smell like the morning after. I drop my bag at Hotel Cranenturm, then head back to the boat dock. I've arranged a private walk through town with Herr Jung, Bacharach's retired schoolmaster. The riverfront scene is local and laid back. Retired German couples, thick after a lifetime of beer and potatoes, set the tempo at an easy stroll. I gaze across the Rhine. Lost in thoughts of Bacchus and Roman Bacharach, I'm in another age, until two castle-clipping World War III fighters from a nearby American base drill through the silence. The Rhine Valley is stained by war. While church bells play cheery ditties in Holland, on the Rhine they sound more like hammers on anvils. At bridges, road signs still indicate which lane is reinforced and able to support tanks. As the last of the World War II survivors pass on, memories fade. The war that ripped our grandparents' Europe in two will become like a black-and-white photo of a long-gone and never-known relative on the mantel. I pause at Bacharach's old Riverside War Memorial. A big stone urn with a Maltese cross framed by two helmets, it seems pointedly ignored by holidaymakers. Erected to honor the dead of Bismarck's first war in 1864, it was designed with a vision to accommodate the wars that followed. Blank slabs became rolls of honor for the dead of 1866, 1870, and 1914 to 18. Compared to war's greedy toll, the Lorelei seems as harmless as an oversexed gnat. Herr Jung arrives, and I ask him to translate the words carved onto the stone. To remember the hard but great time, he starts, then mutters, ah, this is not important now. Herr Jung explains, we turn our backs to the monuments of old wars. We have one day in the year when we remember those who have died in the wars. Those who lost sons, fathers, and husbands have a monument in their heart. They don't need this old stone. Ralph Jung is an energetic gentleman whose glasses seem to dance on his nose as he weaves a story. When meeting my tour groups for guided walks, he greets them as he did his class of fifth graders 30 years ago, singing, Good morning, good morning to you and you and you. Like so many Europeans, he has a knack for finding greatness in his work, no matter how grand or small the job. A walk with Herr Jung always makes me feel good about Europe. As I ponder the memorial, he quotes Bismarck. Nobody wants war, but everybody wants things they can't have without war. Herr Jung seems dressed for remembering, wearing a white shirt open at the collar under an old-time suit. He looks past the town's castle where the ridge of the gorge meets the sky and says, I remember the sky. It was a moving carpet of American bombers coming over that ridge. Mothers would run with their children. There were no men left. In my class, 49 of the 55 boys lost their fathers. My generation grew up with only mothers. I remember the bombings, he continues, lying in our cellar, praying with my mother. I was a furious deal-maker with God. I can still hear the guns. Day after day we watched American and Nazi warplanes fighting. 
We were boys. We'd jump on our bikes to see the wreckage of killed planes. I was the neighborhood specialist on warplanes. I could identify them by the sound. One day, a huge plane was shot down. It had four engines. I biked to the wreckage, and I couldn't believe my eyes. It was a plane designed with a huge upright wing in the center. Then I realized this was only the tail section. The tail section was as big as an entire plane. I knew then that we would lose this war. The years after the war were hungry years. I would wake in the middle of the night and search the cupboards, he says. There was no fat, no bread, no nothing. I licked spilled grain from the cupboard. We had friends in New York, and they sent coffee, which we could trade with farmers for grain. For this, I have always been thankful. When I think of what the Nazis did to Germany, I remember a fine soup cooked by 30 people can be spoiled by one man with a handful of salt. Herr Jung takes me on an historic ramble through the back lanes of Bacharach. Like any good small-town teacher, he's known and admired by everyone. We climb through the vineyards above town to a bluff overlooking a six-mile stretch of the Rhine. He says, I came here often as a boy to count the ships. I once saw fifty in the river in front of Bacharach. We look out over the town's slate rooftops. Picking up a stone, he carves the letters R-I-C-K into the slate step and tells me, Now you are here, carved in stone, until the next rain. Ever a teacher, he explains, slate is very soft. The Rhine River found this and carved out this gorge. Soil made from slate absorbs the heat of sun, so our vines stay warm at night. And we grow a fine wine here on the Rhine. Herr Jung continues, Today the vineyards are going back to the wild. Germans won't work for eight marks. That's about five of your dollars per hour. The Polish come to do the work. During the solidarity time, I housed a guest worker. After 11 weeks in the field, he drove home in a used Mercedes. Together, Herr Jung and I pass under the fortified gate and walk back into town, cradled safely in half-timbered cuteness. My teacher can sense what I'm thinking, that Bacharach was never good for much more than inspiring a poem, selling a cuckoo clock, or docking a Rhine boat. Propping his soft leather suitcase on his knee, he fingers through a file of visual aids, each carefully hand-colored and preserved in plastic for rainy days. Herr Jung pulls out a sketch of Bacharach fortifications, intact and busy with trade, to show how, in its heyday, from 1300 to 1600, the town was rich and politically important. He says, medieval Bacharach had 6,000 people. That was big in the 15th century. But the plagues, fires, and religious wars of the 17th century ended our powerful days. Bacharach became empty. It was called the Cuckoo Town. Other people moved in, in the way a cuckoo takes over an empty nest. For 200 years now, our town is only a village of a thousand. In the mid-19th century, poets and painters like Victor Hugo were charmed by the Rhineland's romantic mix of past glory, present poverty, and rich legend. They put this part of the Rhine on the old Grand Tour map, and the tourists' romantic Rhine was born. A ruined 15th-century chapel hangs like a locket under the castle and over the town. In 1842, Victor Hugo stood where Herr Jung and I now stand. Looking at the chapel, he wrote, No doors, no roof or windows. A magnificent skeleton puts its silhouette against the sky. Above it, the ivy-colored castle ruins provide a fitting crown. This is Bacharach, land of fairy tales covered with legends and sagas.
As military jets soar, Roman towers crumble, and the Lorelei sings, this land seems less like a fairy tale and more like a timeless battleground. Earplugs, not chocolate. On early trips to Bacharach, I'd grab a bunk up at the youth hostel in the castle. Now I find ambiance with comfort at Hotel Cranenturm, which fills Bacharach's medieval Cranenturm, or crane tower. Bacharach was located at a treacherous place along the Rhine where boats would have to lighten their loads to pass safely. Bacharach's cranes would hoist cargo, mostly kegs of wine, from boats to be ported downstream to a point where the river was easier to navigate. Dressed in slate, rough timbers, and pointy dormers, the crane tower's windows now give wives a powerful urge to play Rapunzel for camera-toting husbands out in the street. The hotel is run by Herr und Frau Engel. Kurt Engel still looks like a ship's cook. During his merchant marine days, he met and married Fatima in the Philippines. This hotel and restaurant on the Rhine is exactly what they dreamed of. Kurt and Fatima are a team. For ten years, Kurt has whittled on his old building to meet the ever-increasing demands of the modern tourists. And for ten years, Fatima has apologized for what Kurt has yet to whittle. Here on the Rhine, you can't be on the river without being on the train tracks. In the 1800s, early tourists actually requested rooms with a train view. Two trains, among the first in Europe, rolled by each day and people traveled here just to watch them. Today, trains rocket by every couple of minutes, and Rhineland hoteliers assure guests their bedrooms are equipped with special triple-pane windows to keep out the noise. But with earplugs instead of chocolates on the pillows, it's clear three panes aren't enough to silence the roar of modern Germany. I have my customary pre-dinner glass of local wine on the Cranenturm Terrace just to hear the still schoolgirlish Fatima rhyme, Drink Wine on the Rhine. Then an elegant Fatima, who looks like a Filipina Diana Ross with a toothy smile and boundless energy, plops down Ein Viertel, a quarter-liter glass. Then she hands me the hotel's latest promotional postcard and gives me her annual working-too-hard line. This year it comes with a new twist. I have only time to go to Mass in winter, she says. When the priest comes to my restaurant, I remind him, a work well done is a prayer itself. Fatima turns so fast her long black hair flips out. It seems serving her customers keeps her young. Enjoying a slight buzz from my goblet of fruity white wine, I gaze peacefully past a bit of medieval wall fitted generously with hotel terrace flower boxes. I look past the four gleaming sets of rails, a two-lane highway, the Maltese Cross War Memorial, still ignored by strollers in the park, past the churning river, and up the vineyard-dotted distant hillside to another phantom castle. Then, swoosh! A train rockets by, just a few feet away, shaking the terrace. I spin my head to read the destination plate on each car as it streaks by. Where are they speeding to? I can never tell. At dinner, grape-bunch chandeliers shake from the ceiling and conversations pause as the blur of an express train fills the arched windows. Guests look at each other with frightened eyes, wondering in unison, how will we sleep tonight? Kurt with a beer belly begging for later hosen, but stuffed only into a greasy T-shirt and jeans, steps out of the kitchen to share his latest exasperation. After drawing himself a beer, he joins me at my table. The evening's cooking is done. Looking exhausted and burned out, he says, It's the new cook. He's always sick. A cook costs me 4,000 Deutschmarks every month. That's about 2,500 of your dollars. The worker gets one month paid vacation and up to six weeks paid sick time. 
doctors say the best way for a German employee to stop being sick is to start his own business. Sucking on his tired cigarette while his wife rushes by with a tray of glasses, he continues, You cannot run a business this way. The only small business that can succeed is the family business. Family employees don't work the German system against you. Thinking of the dedication to quality that I witnessed among workers in piano factories years before, I lament. So the fine tradition of German craftsmanship is dying. Kurt fudges on the side of optimism. Maybe in industries where you can see your final work it will survive, but for service industries such as tourism, things are very bad, very bad. An hour later, Kurt climbs down into the cellar, sheds ten years, and opens up his tropical tons bar. Like an impish, balding, and German Alfred E. Newman, he turns on the disco ball. Commanding his musical control panel as if driving a jet ski, he churns out schmaltzy German schlager and American pop. Lights flicker around the amazing room as tourists dance under medieval arches. Brown and white cowhides are draped over the seats. Sombreros serve as lampshades, and plastic palm trees camouflage the sewer pipes. A built-in tableau, like a museum display, features a tropical island nearly covered by bigger-than-life turtles. On the dance floor, a fountain burbles in front of a wall-sized beach mural. It's a bit of the Philippines with a splash of the Old West right here on the Rhine. As Kurt's smile broadens, nearly completing the jolly circle as receding hairline starts, I realize how much happiness can hide behind old fortified walls. I climb the stairs from the tropics back into medieval Germany and spiral up to my round tower room. My bathroom window overlooks the Rhine and what must be Germany's busiest train tracks. While most hotels post no washing in the sink signs, Fatima put her nervous stamp on the sign above my sink, Washing of clothes in room is extremely prohibited. The sign, which travelers interpret as a warning not to let wet clothes drip on the floor or furniture, reminds me that I'm out of clean clothes. I feel so domestic and responsible when I struggle with my filthy clothes. Having my hands wrist deep in a sink full of murky gray water dissolves any twinge of guilt for ignoring Fatima's sign. Even with triple panes bolted shut, the thunder of the train wakes me early. Giving up on sleep, I look across the tracks, past that forgotten memorial, to the still misty river. Satisfied that there was a reason I was driven out of my sleep so early, I savor the view. Huge barges rolling with the mist, one sporting a car on its bow like a hood ornament. 20th century commerce under 15th century castles. A vivid memory of my first trip to Europe was the daily routine of Germans stepping sleepily into the breakfast room, wishing each other a slow and pre-coffee miserable Morgen for good morning. German businessmen do their Morgen very slow and very low. In past years, Krenenturm's breakfast was always an occasion for a cheery Morgen. Kurt's mother, my favorite Großmutter, would scurry about bent and secretive like a friendly sorcerer. She'd enter like a kettle boiling over with her bowl of hausgemacht, that's homemade marmalade. With her queen mum smile, she'd explain that the dark red marmalade was a fruit cocktail of seven fruits, but that the Johannisberry was the dominant fruit and overwhelmed the colors of all the others. Kurt's mom died last year and was replaced at breakfast by Fatima, whose nervous bubbliness is just too intense for this early hour. Without Grandma and her hausgemacht marmalade, the Cranentorm breakfast will never be quite right. Morgan. Giant Steins 
and well-hung cuckoo clocks. The town of St. Gore, nestled in the cliffs beneath the mighty Rhinefell's castle, commands a visit. After a ten-minute train ride from Bacharach and a fifteen-minute climb, I find myself standing like a victorious mountain climber atop the highest tower of the castle, under the black, gold, and red stripes of a hard-flapping German flag. Far below me, cargo-laden barges dance their endless reels with the ferries and the tour boats. The half-timbered dormers and steeples of St. Gore seem to tumble from the castle to the river. St. Gore was established in pre-Roman times as a place where Celtic sailors would stop and give thanks to their gods after surviving that gurgling gauntlet of Lorelei and the Seven Maidens. Today, tour groups stop here, praying only for a good deal. They're cheered on by flags of the biggest spenders, Americans, Japanese, Canadians, French, Germans, English, and Australians. I hike down from the castle into St. Gore, landing right between the town's two biggest shops. A double-decker bus beats me by a minute, squirting its crowd directly into the clock shop. Heinz Mule and his family run the shop with the world's largest free-hanging cuckoo clock. It's necessary to say free-hanging because there are actual cuckoo clock houses in Germany's Black Forest. Reason enough to skip that area altogether, if you ask me. The shop across the street, run by Manfred Montag and his wife Maria, and son Misha boasts the world's biggest stein, a burly four-footer filling their front window. Manfred has been my man in the Rhine for years. On each visit, my tour group stops by his shop to hear his talk about the local stein industry. Today, Manfred greets me warmly and takes me across the street to see his friend Heinz. Heinz, whose shop wriggles with hyperactive timekeepers, takes me on a cuckoo clock tour. He explains, clocks with heavy pine cones mean you whine only once in eight days. Small pine cones must be wound every day. I ask, every day? Heinz says, when you brush your teeth, you wind your clock, no problem. One cone controls the time. Clocks with two cones give you time and cuckoo. Three cones, time, cuckoo, and music. With pride, he pokes a tiny stick under the clock and adds, Und now we have this small lever. You can turn the cuckoo off and get some quiet at night. I say, probably by customer request. Actually, people used to lock the cuckoo's door, Heinz explains, flipping a small wire latch to demonstrate, but this was only good for transport. Each hour, the cuckoos would bounce against it and break their spring. So, to save the cuckoos, we now have this lever instead. Then I ask, Aren't these clocks actually Swiss? Heinz grows suddenly tall and stern, with increased voltage in his eyes, as Heinz inhales deeply, Manfred jokes. Now you get him going. With an exasperated exhale, Heinz straightens me out. Cuckoo clocks are German. Only one piece, the music roll, is Swiss-made. Tourists, they know Swiss watches, and they think a watch is a clock. But the cuckoo clock, it is German. The Swiss shops, they give tour guides bigger commissions, so tour guides say to their groups, wait for the real thing in Switzerland. Swiss shops, they stock only the little chalet models. One tourist bought many cuckoo clocks in Switzerland. They ran out and had to have one clock shipped to her directly from the factory. When she received a package from Germany, she sent it back to the Swiss shop with an angry note, claiming she would not accept because she wants only the genuine Swiss cuckoo clock. It is amazing what tourists will believe. Remembering the kilometer signposts I erected along the Rhine, I nod. Now brandishing a Swiss army knife, Heinz says, Would I tell people these are German? Even though he seems a gentle sort, I figure I'm safest endorsing his disgust. Edging toward the door, I return with Manfred back to his shop. 
These merchant families get caught up in their own sales pitches. Stalking me as I browse, Maria Montag notices my attention to the stuffed teddies. Steve's, she hiccups, the Mercedes of stuffed animals. My grandson had only three stuffed animals, all Steve's. Like merchants throughout Europe, Herr Montag reads the world economic pulse via tourist trends. From the way he moans, you'd think the rise of the Deutschmark was giving him lederhosen wedgies. Manfred says, The Taiwanese are very good for us, but the Japanese, Chinese, and Koreans, they shop only at businesses owned by their tour companies. This hurts us. Then I say, They follow the shopping advice of their guides. Manfred says, And the Japanese tourists don't just call their leader's guide, they call them dai-sensei. That's honorable teacher. I ask, What about the English? Munford says, we get fewer English every year, but they never buy nothing anyway. We had a group of 40 in yesterday. We didn't sell one postcard. They buy no steins, only the beer. The Rhine, once Europe's cultural divide, is now a thoroughfare for tourists. On this historic battleground where Romans clobbered barbarians, Catholics butted Bibles with Protestants, and allies met Nazis, today's battles are fought on a smaller, friendlier scale as family-run businesses compete for the tourist dollar. In the heat of the summer, as Rhine boats are loaded with tourists and tour buses lumber like tanks down narrow roads, you can almost hear the Lorelei singing. Tourists, tourists, I've got steeps and steins and cakes of white wine.